going to uh, kind of go off in a little different direction today than we have for several months now as we've been going through the parables and the Gospels. Today's message is entitled, Biblical Principles for Those Who Struggle Financially. According to the Center for Financial Services, a study, 28%, over one-fourth of Americans are financially healthy. About a quarter of Americans, 55% are classified as financially coping, struggling, but not in every aspect. 17% are considered financially vulnerable, struggling in every single area of their financial life. Almost half, listen to this, almost half said that their spending exceeded their income over the past 12 months. Half of Americans do not even have three months of living expenses in a cash form. When it came to debt, I was astounded. The new uh, level now, non-mortgage debt is now a whopping $25,000 per family. 38% with Non-mortgage debt believe that in five years, they will still have the same amount of debt. What can you, I can't even imagine how terrible, how helpless, how hopeless it would feel to be in such a hole and to just realize there's really no way out. But I thank God today that we serve a good God who's got a good answer for us. And it's an answer more than just simply make more and spend less. Now, that's not a bad concept, but that's, uh, that's so minimal compared to what God wants to do in our life. God has some God-directed steps. God wants His children to master their money rather than be mastered by it. Or maybe, uh, to say it more accurately, we should have our money mastered the word master in all caps. We should make sure that the master, Jesus Christ, is over all our money. Well, we're going to talk about money today. And so I don't want you to have a heart attack. I don't want you to feel bad. I heard about a man who came into a large inheritance, several hundred thousand dollars. Such a great amount of money that the man who was old and had such a bad heart, they thought they'd better not tell him that he had so much money just bluntly because they thought he might have a heart attack hey, you know what we'll do. The preacher is good with words. We'll ask the preacher to tell him. And so the minister went over to tell this man about his windfall. The minister thought rather than telling him just straight out, he'd kind of ease into it. So he put it this way, rather than a statement, he put a question to the old man and said, uh, Grandpa, what would you do if you had $200,000? He said, Pastor, I would give it all to the building fund. The pastor had a heart attack. <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. Well, I don't want you to have a heart attack, folks, this morning, but we're going to talk about money. And uh, if you think you don't struggle, you might uh, get a little different idea as we go through here. Truth is, we all struggle. Finances is a big area of our life. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for this great story in the Old Testament. A reminder about how that you are the great answer-giving God to any situation, and we thank you for it. God, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go to 2 Kings chapter 4, please. 2 Kings chapter 4, 
verse number one. And uh, we're going to read this first verse together just to kind of get us all on the same page here. Second Kings chapter four and verse number one. All right, we all there? Okay, great. Let's read it together. Now there cried a certain woman of the wise of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take him, my two sons, to be bondmen. Elisha. Not Elijah, but Elisha. I always get those two mixed up. Don't ever remember which either one did, but they were two both very wonderful and distinct men of God. Elisha was a prophet. A prophet in the Old Testament was a pastor, definitely shepherded the people spiritually, but often shepherded them in very practical areas, even political areas. And so really a prophet was almost a a political leader. Elisha was the uh, political uh, prophet, uh, religious prophet to the northern kingdom. You'd say, northern kingdom, what's that? Well, uh, for those of you who've been in the FBI or been around a bit, you know that right after Solomon, tragically, the nation of Israel had a huge civil war. Two tribes, the southern tribes as they're known, Judah and Benjamin, went south. The northern tribes, which basically, geographically, basically the northern ten tribes were in the north. So Israel split up into two groups, the northern kingdom, as they're called, and the southern kingdom. Each ends up having about 20 kings or so. Rehoboam is the first king of this northern kingdom in the, uh, right after Solomon. Now, as you might imagine, after a civil war, the country's torn in pieces. It wasn't really strong anyway, after all the shenanigans that went on after uh, Solomon's death. But uh, one of the things that was very definitely uh, uh, in a trouble was the priesthood. And so God raised up these amazing men of God, like Elisha, who went out and started these Bible colleges. And that's what you'll notice in that first verse there. It says that uh, he was, uh, this woman was a wife of one of the sons of the prophets, meaning a Bible college, uh, maybe more like an internship would be more accurate. They would teach and then they'd go out and minister. They would have uh, groups of men with them. And so it was a great time. They would be in the Word of God. They would pray. They were a force for righteousness in the kingdom. Now, one of the young preachers had a wife. And I remind us all that marriage is honorable, says the book of Hebrews, and nothing inconsistent with being married and working for God. And I can tell you that in my case, it's not only not inconsistent, but it is the best thing. I actually serve better because I'm married. I would not want to be a single man, I would tell you that for sure. When my wife and I got ready to be married, I know... uh, uh, she wondered about uh, if we could be more effective individually or together. And I said, honey, I said, uh, you know, I figure it's kind of like steak. I said, steak is good. I believe I can carry on, but steak and lobster is even better. And uh, now I'm not saying my wife's an old lobster, but I'm just saying that uh, we're uh, together. We're good. And uh, that's the way it ought to be. Now, notice what it says. This precious woman, this man had a wife. It wasn't some of these uh, religions that don't think we should have a wife. It says she cried. Now that Hebrew word there is the word for shriek. 
she was a shrieking woman. <laughs> well, she had every right to shriek. Her husband passed away. She didn't have much of an income, had two sons to feed. She was in great need, a real need, not like me when I say I need a in and out burger. And uh, that's not the kind of need she had. She had a real need. Notice it says that her husband died. Her husband died. He was a pastor. He was serving God. They didn't really have a lot. And probably relatively young because the sons were not too old and just two of them. And so uh, very likely he died in the 30s when he was in his 30s, maybe his 40s. But you know, I don't know why God does what He does, but I think that we can all recognize this morning that we have a sovereign God, and God never makes mistakes. And so that's what we see here. Uh, he died. She was a good woman. He was a good man and had a difficult time, but um, God in His sovereignty did what He did. And then notice what it says, the creditor is come. The creditor is come, and you can be sure of that. <laughs> the creditor will come. Um, I uh, was driving down the 99 freeway there, and I saw an advertisement for a credit union, and I know they meant it as a good thing, but they, uh, some big credit union said, uh, we'll be there for you. <laughs> I laughed and said, yeah, I bet you'll be there for me. And the uh, first time I miss a payment, you'll be there for me, all right. And you'll be there for my family and my car and my house and everything I have. But uh, the creditors come, and they will come. Now, the fact was, this woman was struggling. She was a poor, dear sister, and her husband had passed away, and she was struggling. She was struggling with grief. She was struggling with uh, probably guilt and everything else that comes along with losing your loved one. It was just it was a terrible time. And if that wasn't enough, she was broke, busted. I mean, you talk about, I'm using the word struggling, but I'm telling you what, she was just in bad, bad shape. Now, how do you know if you're struggling or not? Uh, someone put together a small list of questions. Let me ask you several. Are you struggling in your finances? Do you charge daily expenditures because you just don't have enough to pay for them? Do you find yourself putting off paying bills because of the lack of money? Do you borrow money to pay fixed expenses like taxes or insurance or rent? Do you find yourself unaware of just how much you actually owe? Do you have creditors and bill collectors calling about your past bills or sending you letters? Have you taken new loans to pay off your old ones? Do you argue over finances with your spouse? Do you find it difficult to be faithful to return God's tithe to Him? And if you answered in any of those questions affirmative in any way, then the fact is you struggle with your finances. Now, you're here this morning, and you may feel like you got 100% on those questions, but you may also be in trouble. Do you find yourself putting more faith in your money than in God? Or how about this one? Do you continue to ask for your daily bread? Even though you know you have it in the refrigerator, even though you have money in the bank enough to feed you until the day you die, do you still ask every day, oh God, feed us. Give us this day our daily bread. If you don't, you struggle. You're struggling with the real reason behind money. Money is not to be sat there and looked at. There's a reason and a purpose behind it. Now, there are eight biblical principles I find in this passage for those who struggle financially. As I sat down all week long, I've been praying, and as I finally got down to be able to just kind of concentrate, I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, just give me some great principles 
about our finances from this passage. Let me share them with you what I feel like the Holy Spirit gave me. Number one, there is no single level of income that is more spiritual than another lifestyle. Look at verse 1. It says, There cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons unto the prophets of Elisha. Here we have several groups here. A woman, a widow. We have the sons of the prophets. We have Elisha. And we also know that there was the king Rehoboam there. Now, in this situation, each one had a different level of income. The woman had one level. It was not very much at all. Elisha had another level. Probably wasn't a great amount, but it was certainly more than the woman. And then the prophets may have had another level, the sons of the prophets. And then there's Rehoboam. I mean, he had a very comfortable lifestyle, most likely. And so, but in this verse, I don't see anywhere God saying, you know what, that's tragic that there's such an inequality in riches. We need to make sure that we do something to level the playing field. And today, you listen to groups all around this world saying, we need to, we need to make sure there's no income inequality, but everybody ought to have a chance to have riches. Well, God never really says about that. In fact, if anything, Jesus said, you always will have the poor. That's actually part of the way this world works. Now, the fact is, and the reason I bring this up is because I think it's important to remember that there are certain things in life that are just non-negotiable. Where I was born, to whom I was born, whether I was born to a big family, small family, what era I was born in, whether I'm male or female. Today we have people that don't like the way God made them male or female and decide to change. But simply, there are certain things that you can't change. There is no way that this woman was going to get her husband back. Her source of reliable income was gone. That's just gone. Now with God's grace, however, she could soldier on, put one foot in front of the other, and uh, God was going to take care of this woman. And God had a plan for her. The idea here, as I'm trying to point out, is that there is some point in life we just need to embrace and understand our station in life. And I always love what Pastor Mike reminds us of when he comes. Uh, Pastor Mike, who does his ministry in uh, India, and uh, he has a little uh, issue with these prosperity gospel preachers who talk about, you know, that God wants everybody rich and healthy. He said, you know, I wish I could take some of them to the Dalits of India. The fact is, it would be a ludicrous thing to stand up there in front of those people who make just pennies a day and tell them that God wants them to be rich. That's a cruel joke to try to put that kind of theology on those people. Now, could they have a better life? Yes. Jesus comes into their life and things could radically change. Are they going to be rich like a king? Very likely not. And so there is a certain sense in all of our lives that I just accept, by God's grace, the situation I'm in. And that's, I think, a great place to begin. And That's when God can step in and do a change. Number two, there are times when good Christians find themselves in debt. It says uh, here at the last part of this verse, the creditor is come. He was in debt, and because he was in debt, she was in debt. And because they were both in debt, their children were in debt. Now, this woman is never named. I know some uh, take offense at that as though she wasn't important, but I think there's some great theological reasons why she wasn't. But um, Jewish tradition says that she was the wife of Obadiah, the prophet 
of whom the book in the Old Testament is named, Obadiah. Obadiah was a mighty man of God. He was a prophet who was known for protecting and providing for other prophets. In fact, Jewish tradition says that he provided for 50 preachers, the income for 50 preachers. Now, if that was the case, that's very likely why he didn't have any money for his family. I mean, uh, he just had given so much to the ministry that and uh, because death came at an inopportune time, it just made them in a difficult situation. The fact is he wasn't wasteful. He wasn't extravagant. He wasn't a partier. How do I know that? Because the Bible says very clearly in verse 1, he feared the Lord. So here we have two things that don't seem to make sense. He was a God-fearing man who was in debt. Folks, sometimes it just happens. I wish it didn't, but it does. Sometimes we get sick and we can't work. Sometimes there are medical expenses that pile up, and I mean, it just uh, gets beyond anybody's ability. I remember uh, the, uh, the um, oncologist uh, told us uh, about um, Lynette's sickness and her treatment, and they said, you know, uh, I don't know, I was talking about insurance or something, or paying cash, or I forget what it was, and he just told me, he said, Pastor, he said, I promise you, there's nobody alive that can pay for the medicine for oncology. I mean, it's, it's, we're talking millions. And, you know, it's just beyond anybody's ability. And, he, and in addition to this situation, maybe he had medical expense. We don't know. But then there was a great amount of governmental persecution going on. So the fact is, uh, he might have been under the thumb of the, uh, of the king. Uh, he might have been providing for the ministry. Whatever the case is, uh, he was in debt. Now, honestly, it's also possible that he was just gullible. And I don't know what it is about Christians, but I tell you, it amazes me how gullible Christians can be in their financial world. You have somebody come along with some new health thing, some alternative medicine, and Christians will buy into that. They'll get into some multi-level marketing program. And I mean, they will spend thousands and waste so much money. Folks, I just uh, encourage you. Jesus said it this way. He said, children of this world are wiser than the children of God, especially when it comes to money. Folks, don't be uh, gullible when it comes to that stuff. But the sad reality is today, the majority of people in America that are in debt and struggle financially, it's not because of some financial uh, mishap like some medical debt or something else. Just fact is they just live a lifestyle that's far above what they have in hand. Now, the point I'm trying to make in this thing is this, that poverty is not especially a sign of irresponsibility, but neither is it a sign of godliness. And wealth is no sign of wickedness. The fact is, there are just simply times when we can't help what happens. It just happens. Number three, there is always a price to pay with debt. Now, even though uh, it may have been not of his own choosing, not of his own extravagance, it's still a debt, and it's a, you're going to pay it. Notice what it says, the creditors come to take my two sons to be bondmen. Now, I think we can all agree that the creditors need to be repaid. That's the only right thing. But I mean to tell you, really, take her two sons, that just seems kind of severe. But the fact is, uh, this lady didn't have any assets. I mean, she had zero. And so the only thing that these creditors could see is two sons. Apparently, they were old enough to at least start working. What, 
five. And uh, that's what at least my kids used to say. And you have us out there doing the lawn. We're six years old. Hey, lucky I didn't have you start when you were three. And, uh, but um, so these children were probably young, maybe uh, 12, 13 years old, maybe a little older. I don't know. But the fact is they represented labor. Labor meant income. And so the scripture allowed that uh, the Israelites actually could take a person to pay for their debts. And that's actually an allowed thing. But God, unlike the world, had a limit, and the limit was seven years. You can only keep a person to pay their debts for seven years, and you had to have a release. It's called the sabbatical year. And so um, now the world did it the opposite. They, they kept people for slaves forever, and that's a terrible thing. But here I think we see one of the biggest concerns for taking on voluntary debt. That's a good word, voluntary debt. If the unthinkable happens, you leave your family under a tremendous load of pressure. You'd say, what is debt? That's actually a very good question, because I've heard people explain debt as any bill you have from PG&E. I've heard other people say that nothing's a debt, you know, as long as you pay your bills. But the fact is, the scriptural answer to that is that a debt is all unsecured obligations. All unsecured obligations. Now, um, all debts are certainly obligations, but not all obligations are debts. That's what it says in Romans chapter 13 and verse number 7. It says, owe no man anything. The, the point is to not owe it. You'd say, well, how can I not owe something and, and still have a contract? Well, if the thing that you purchased or received is uh, uh, greater in value than that which you borrowed, then it secures it. And in that regard, it's not a debt, it's just an obligation. And so the point being here that this man may have had to borrow for uh, some reason, and if it was something that had value, then it wouldn't be a debt. But, um, and, and I would say this, my friend, and I would make a plea, and this is just a personal plea to you as a pastor to his people and to those that are maybe visiting here. If you were underwater in any area, and you're a father or you're a mother, if your assets can't be readily liquidated to cover all your obligations, then I would encourage you somehow, some way, to find a uh, golden parachute, maybe temporary, but uh, you'd say, what do you mean by that? You need to have a soft landing. You need to have something that gives you the ability to uh, cover what's going on. I think the easiest way and the quickest way and perhaps the most responsible way is just get a small term life insurance policy. Just get one that covers all your debts. Do that immediately. Do it tomorrow. And uh, if, you, if you have any unsecured, or if you were to take all of your assets and all of your liabilities, and that's not, if you're underwater in that, then just go get a short-term uh, life uh, insurance policy that covers all that, and then you, we can begin working on what you need to do. And that is, of course, uh, sitting down, writing out all your debts, how much you owe, and then sit down and those are the most uh, burdensome and onerous. Then make out a, a repayment schedule with all of them, but certainly put your emphasis onto those because uh, you know how that goes. And you'd say, well, how can I do all this? Get my little book on debt, discerning debt out there. That'll be a great help to you. But I, I would just encourage you that there is a price to pay with debt. I, it is, folks, and it is, uh, it is unjust to put your family in a situation that if you were to have a tragedy, they're going to be severely underwater. 
They should be able to at least have enough to cover the situation, maybe a few dollars extra. But I will tell you, uh, that is unjust to do to your loved ones. So make sure, whatever the case, just get that taken care of, and then we can proceed ahead. And, and so I would, and, we, and thank God we live in a country, uh, in, a, in a day and age where there are those kind of vehicles available. Number four, there is always an answer in God. There's always an answer in God. Verse number one, there cried a certain woman of the wives unto the sons of the prophets, unto Elisha. She didn't go to a credit counselor. She didn't go to her family and try to get money from them. She didn't go to the bank to try to borrow. She didn't uh, go to her neighbors. It says she went to the man of God. She went to God. And that was important because it was in that desperation that she put her place, she put herself in a place for God to do a miracle. I love what one author said. He said, desperation is the breeding ground for miracles. You'd say, well, I'm desperate this morning. Then hallelujah, you're about ready to see a miracle because that is the time when God steps in. Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord of God is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth them that be of a contrite spirit. And she had a broken heart. She had a broken heart. Trust me, she had a broken heart. She lost her young husband. She looked at those two little boys. They'd look up at her. What are we going to do, Mom? And I'm sure she looked at them and tried to keep up a stiff upper lip and tried to, you know, uh, put it, not put too much burden on them. But I'm sure she was dying on the inside. But not only was she dying because of grief, she was broke. And women didn't have the ability to go out and get a job as much then. It was just not as easy. Uh, so, I mean... She was facing some severe problems. So what is she going to do? Can God take care of a little widow and two boys? I'll tell you what, uh, God can. You say, well, what did they do? Well, I'm sure that her and Elisha prayed. I'm sure they prayed. But I want you to notice also, Elisha made a, he asked a couple of key questions. Look at verse number two. And Elisha said unto her, what shall I do for thee? <laughs> Now to that question, if I was that woman, I might want to react and say, what do you mean what to do for you? What does it look like? I'm, you know, I'm starving here. I got two little kids. But I think there was a reason why I asked that question, a penetrating question. Basically asked the question, what do you need? The second question he asked is, what do you have? Notice what he said. Tell me what thou hast in the house. And she said, thine handmaid, so humble. I'm just your handmaid, a handmaid of the Lord hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. The word pot there actually means flask, and she only had oil in the house. Two penetrating questions. What do you need, and what do you have? And I believe that we can't uh, find what we have until we realize what we don't have. He was asking her to be honest about the situation. Be honest. I want you to look at your situation. I want you to actually embrace your, this thing. You don't have anything. You really don't. You have nothing. He was not trying to be harsh. He was just setting this thing up for God to do a miracle. You have nothing, lady. And by the way, that's a very important thing for us to do is just to realize that because I have nothing, only God can get me out of this situation. The problem is most of us feel like we have stuff, you know, well, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. You know, until we get to the point where we say, I have nothing but God. I have nothing but God. 
then God can say, that's for I like. You know, we are, our hands are so full of stuff, God can't put anything into it. We're so full of our little marbles, God wants to put gold nuggets in there. God says, what do you have? What do you have? She said, I have nothing. And then he asked her, what do you have in the house? Now, I think from a very practical standpoint, he was just simply saying, what can we sell? What can we, what can we do with what you have? And if she had had a you know, diamond necklace that was worth a million dollars, well, maybe that'd be a good place to start. You know, sell that thing, hawk it, you know, let's move on. I think there's a practical thing in all of this. But I think the point here is that uh, she was, uh, he was trying to remember that while she had nothing from a visible standpoint, she did have God. But the second question he asked her was a question of hope. And that is, look at what you do have. I don't want you to look at what you don't have, embrace it, understand it, but then I want you to look at what you do have. What do you have? What do you really have in your hand? What do you have? I think so many of us are so consumed with what we don't have, we forget all the blessings we do have. Someone's here saying, I don't have any money, so I can't be happy. I may not have money, but that doesn't mean I can't be happy. I'm not married, so I just can't be fulfilled. Look at what we do have. Now, the point I think practical is that I think we can do something with the oil you have. Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 17, remind us that the Israelis were merchants. They were merchants, and they traded in the market with wheat and honey and oil. Now, there is a discrepancy what the oil was. Some think it was an anointing oil. Since her husband was a uh, was a son of the prophet. He was one of those preacher boys. They would go around and anoint people with oil and pray over them. This oil would oftentimes be more than just olive oil. It would actually be uh, a combination of very valuable herbs. Or it could have been just the finest olive oil. Now, olive oil ranges from that which is just pretty uh, not very expensive to some very, very pricey, pricey oil. I imagine that this was a very pricey, high-end oil. Now, how he got it, how they had it, we don't know. Maybe they had olives. Maybe it was given to him. But the virgin oil, extra virgin oil, extra, extra virgin oil, that oil that comes after being cold-pressed, and it was very valuable. Whatever the case was, she kept it, they protected it, and that's all they had. Now, it's interesting to me how that miracles in the Bible are often very unique. Now, sometimes people feel like the answer to every financial problem is exactly the same. And sometimes you listen to these financial experts, sometimes you listen to the, the world, and they have this, you know, step-by-step -step procedure, and, and there's some be good in that. But the fact is, when it comes to a miracle, you just start with what you have, not with what you don't have. And here's why that's important. I was talking with a precious woman, her husband uh, had uh, had some illnesses or other issues. I'm not sure all that he, his issues were, but uh, he wasn't providing or wasn't able to provide for the home. She decided that uh, she was going to uh, go off to uh, a medical, uh, get medical training, and it was going to take three years, and she would have to leave the house, move to Los Angeles. I said, was your family going with you? No. I said, okay, you're married. She said, I know, but... Uh, I got to provide. She got a student loan of, I have no idea how much money, it was tens of thousands of dollars, to go off to medical training. 
I told her, I said, that is absolutely ludicrous. I mean, that's just crazy. I love you, and I, I'm uh, for you, and I appreciate your effort here for your family, but come on, there's, there's another way. And rather than looking at something you don't have, look at what you do have. Start with what you do have. He didn't give a pie-in-the-sky concept to this woman. Well, if you got a four-year degree and, and you went here, no, start with what you have. I got oil. Well, then do something with the oil you have. Do you have training? Do you have something in your hand? Do you, do you have some unique situation? Hers was a unique situation. And God is a thousand ways to increase that we never thought, thought possible. Verse number three, then God said, go borrow the vessels of all thy neighbors and don't borrow just a few empty vessels. I want you to get as many as you can. Go to your neighbors because your neighbors are going to see what's going to happen. This is God's story. God's going to write a miracle over your life. And I like what Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship. The Greek word there is poem. We are God's poem. We are God's beautiful billboard, a beautiful poem for his glory. Number five, there is a unique favor from God waiting for you. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee. This is going to be just for you and your family. Thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and thou shalt pour out into all those vessels and shalt set aside that which is full. You've got to shut the door, and then God will do a miracle. Shut the door. Why? To prevent interruptions, I think, from the creditors so that they wouldn't uh, kind of make a mess of things. But I think he was trying to get her to refuse to poor mouth. Don't go around poor mouth in your situation. Don't go on Facebook. Don't get a GoFundMe page. Don't start telling everybody about your troubles in life. Shut the door. Don't let anybody know your troubles. Just get secret about this thing because God's going to do a great work. And I, I, I'm concerned about people who rich shame others because they have money or they have goods. Well, I wish I could do that. I, you know, come on now. If God's given them a blessing, rejoice in it and uh, shut the door on yourself. Just uh, because God had a, he was something he was going to do for her. Now, the biggest reason to shut the door, God was going to do a prayer meeting. They were going to, the Holy Spirit was about ready to come into that place and they needed to be together with, uh, without any distraction. I want you to imagine the scene with me. Here's this woman. She tells her boys, their young age, go out and get vessels. So they all come together. They're all sitting there together. The house, the room is filled with these pots. They don't even have room to hardly move. They, I mean, Brother Elisha said, go get them. And she, not a few, and she was an obedient lady. She got a bunch of them. I mean, she just got a bunch. The boys are looking at her. What do we do now, Mom? And she said, I have no idea. All I know is I'm being obedient. Your dad left us, and I'm sorry he didn't have much, but I'll tell you one thing your dad left us with. He left us with a trust in God, and I believe we can trust God. The man of God said that God was going to do a miracle, so let's just watch what God does. And so she picks up that flask of the finest extra, extra, extra virgin oil. She takes that pot in her hand. She says, boys, hold the one pot. And so they're all watching, and she begins to pour fills up that one pot, and she says, now set it over to the side. Get another one. 
they got another one, and she just kept pouring. They were like, ooh, man, what's going on? And she looked inside. It was full. She said, get another pot. They got another pot. And I mean, she just kept doing that. It must have taken all day to pour that oil into those bottles there in the unique privacy of her unique home, God did a unique work. Folks, God is a unique God. Shut the door. So uh, it has to be just like this. Folks, my financial success is not some straight line that can be followed by, you know, on the internet. It is just a work of God. Just follow the principles and God has a unique work he's going to do. Number six, there is an increase in the using of money. Verse 4, thou shalt pour out. Um, excuse me? I don't have anything in this house. And what little I have, you want me to pour it out? Yep, pour it out. Pour it out? Yep, pour it out. Use it. The way to increase is to pour it out. God gives resources to put them into circulation. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 11, the wise Solomon said, when goods increase, they are increased and eat them. What good is there to the owners thereof? Saving the beholding of them with their eyes. Why in the world do you just set your stuff in there and let your eyes just behold them? The point of income is not to just sit there and watch it, but to use it. The sun gives. And because the sun gives, we have light. And trees give. And because trees give, we have life. And there is a, there is a creative reciprocation that God has put into this world. We are given to give. Jesus said, don't bury your talents, use them. The biggest risk would have been for this woman to not use what God gave her. Just get out there and do something. Now, I also want to point out that she had to get a job. Now, I might have imagined that she would have said, wait a second, why don't you give me the money? Or we should get all of Israel together and, and get me some money. No, Elijah, Elisha said, you need to get a job. And notice what it goes on to say that uh, she, uh, in verse number six and seven, she ended up using that oil as a job. And um, however, God just put it together. Number seven, there is always obedience to God in any real solution. Verse number five, and she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured out. Now, I can only imagine that she might have had the feeling, why, why are you asking me and my sons to work? Where's your compassion, Brother Elisha? Why don't you give us the things we need. It's been said about those on welfare, you know, you can give them a fish, and that's good, but you teach them to fish, they'll have money for the future. She was taught how to fish. Verse number nine, so she went from him. She was obedient. She shut the door upon her and upon her sons and who brought the vessels, and she poured out. She was obedient. She listened to the man of God. She said, all right, I'm just going to get out there and do what I need to do. She was obedient. I guarantee it she was a giver. She was not disrespectful. I guarantee it she was a tither. That's what it says in Malachi 3.10, bring all the tithes into the house, storehouse, 
that there be meat in mine house, and prove me herewith, saith the host, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. Folks, we can't expect, and that word windows is sluice gates, as in a dam, you know, and they pull up those gates and the water just flows out. The, the blessings are in a dam. If you will give obediently, God will open up that and it'll just flow. I'll guarantee it, folks, that you can't thumb your nose at God on Sunday and expect to get up on Monday morning and get the answers to prayer. It doesn't work that way. This lady was obedient. She just served God and said, God, I'll do what you want me to do. And she was obedient to the things of God. And then finally, number eight, there will always be enough for God, in God, for you and your family. And the oil flowed. Verse 6, and it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her son, bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, there's not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. I mean, they'd still be pouring if they had more vessels. And then verse 7, she came and told the man of God and he said, now get into the oil business. <laughs> Good idea in the Middle East. Go and sell the oil and pay thy debt. He didn't say, don't pay your debt, they're mean. He said, you need to pay the debt. I don't care how mean they are. Pay the debt. And I, by the way, that's a good little phrase right there. Pay thy debt. Pay it off. I want you to live debt-free. God wants you to live debt-free, except for to the promises and to the love of God. And pay thy debt and live thou and thy children on the rest. And so he encouraged her to get out there and make a difference in life and and to take what God's given you and use it for His kingdom. God rejoices in the prosperity of His saints. And He wants us to use what we have for the glory of God. Here was this amazing woman who, had a, who was struggling financially. And because of her humbleness, because of her obedience, and because of her giving attitude, God did a miracle work in her life. I'll close with a story I read this week. I thought it was a powerful story, a good, great reminder. You may have heard of John D. Rockefeller, not a popular name in these days, but back in the day, about around the turn of the century, 1900, he was the first world's billionaire. Now today there's a lot of billionaires. There's even 20-year-olds that are billionaires. But John D. Rockefeller was one of the richest men who ever lived. Today he would have been up there along with uh, some of the rich ones that we know about, the Gateses and the Bezos and the others. But John D. Rockefeller was dying at the age of 55. He had a severe bleeding ulcer. About the only thing that he could eat was crackers and milk. It was said that he could not even sleep for one solid hour without being awakened by pain. It had gotten so bad, it was so debilitating, he couldn't sleep. It was just, uh, he was bleeding, losing blood. He was getting anemia. I mean, it was terrible. The doctor said, Mr. Rockefeller, honestly, you are dying. And if something doesn't change, you will be dead in a short amount of time. He went home and began to take uh, just a thought about where he was in life. And then he remembered something that someone had said. Acts chapter 20 and verse 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And for some reason, that verse just started sticking in his mind. The word blessed means happy. Happy are those that give and not receive. He realized he had received so much. 
And so by his own words, here's what he said. He said, I had been so blessed. And so I realized I might be dying anyway. I decided just to start giving my money away. He gave away tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And all of a sudden, something strange happened. He said, the more I gave, the happier I got. The happier I got, the more healing came. He said, I started giving, and my, all my sickness, it just healed up. And I began to sleep. From that time, and when he was 55, he ended up living 30 more years. All because he just followed that scriptural principle. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And I would say as I read this story this week and was so excited about the, all the principles that come from it, folks, uh, God has an answer to all who struggle. And this is the place to begin. Make sure that God gets his portion, that first 10%. Make sure that I have a giving mindset. And then just be obedient and follow God and wait for God to do a miracle. God will do it. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.